and welcome back to National Treasure Hunt, the podcast where the secret lies not only with Charlotte, but also with your co-hosts. I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And today's episode is the first in a three-part recurring theme, if you will, of episodes we'll have coming throughout season three, I guess is the best way I can describe this. Does, Sounds accurate. Yeah, yeah. So today, we're not going to beat around the bush. The theme of today's episode is an in-depth character analysis of the one and only Benjamin Franklin Gates. And if you like this episode, you're obviously going to have to come back throughout the season because you're going to want to hear our character analyses of Riley and Abigail as well. We're just not telling you when they're coming. It's almost as if we planned that. <laughs> So that's what we have in store today. But as always, Emily, I think we have to kick this off with our screams from Parkington Lane. And to anyone who's unfamiliar, our screams from Parkington Lane are just little tidbits of places where national treasure has popped up randomly in our daily lives where it probably shouldn't pop up just to emphasize just how deep into this storyline in this film franchise we really are. So, Emily, I hear you have a scream to share this week. I do. I'm really excited. It happened supernaturally. Like, not, I'm sorry, not supernaturally. It <laughs> happened very naturally. Thanks. Thanks for the clarification. Um, so, I had a dream and I proceeded to wake up in the morning to my alarm and immediately thought, this is a scream. I need to write it down. Aubrey always tells me to write them down. So I remember them. So I went to write it down. Mind you, I was still half asleep. So I had to revise what I had written down after I was like a little more awake, but I didn't do that great of a job of it. So it still doesn't read super well. So for fun, I'm going to read you what I have written and then explain to you exactly what my scream is. I'm really excited for this. Skernif book with invisible in heat activated that I needed for my thesis. So what this was is a dream that I had. <laughs> Sorry, I can't stop laughing. That's, that's incredible. Go on. It is a dream that I had about this old book that I, for some reason, thought that I could cut lines out of so I had a bunch of scraps of paper from this book that I was like piecing together for my thesis which in case you missed it I'm currently writing um and so it was like a stress dream except interestingly all of these pages needed to be heat activated in order for me to see the ink so there was invisible ink just like in the first national treasure movie and just like in the first National Treasure movie, what did I do? I breathed on the paper. As one does. As one does, because it needs heat. <sighs> and <laughs> I breathed on the paper. And let me tell you, I had to continuously breathe on the paper because I would try to read it all as one thing and it would start to like fade away. So I was like <sighs> all over the place in order to get like a comprehensive message. Very not COVID friendly. No, no, not COVID friendly, but that, you know, that, that, that was my scream is, uh, I was doing some national treasure nonsense in my dreams. I love that for you. 
let me just say. And also thank you for writing it down and sharing with us exactly how that came to be because you're really good at making up words. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, so my, my scream um, is actually um, less less funny and, and more of just like an honest shout out. I want to give a shout out as my scream this week to my friend Mike, who was recently in town visiting DC and he went to the spy museum here and um, he brought me back this cute little patch of the all seeing eye because that's what people now associate me with is national treasure, conspiracy theories, all seeing eye, you know, all that fun stuff. So thank you so much, Mike. I am honored that that is what you think of me. Yay, Mike. Yeah, it was super cute. He also uh, recently received his national treasure hunt merch in the mail. Um, yeah which i think leads us nicely into our little social media shout out of the day emily would you like to do the honors you can find us us, 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 us on on, oh geez twitter and instagram at nt hunt podcast you can also find us for your listening ears on itunes spotify we got you hipsters covered over there on soundcloud baby and just a reminder to please go ahead and check out our merch store on t public to go ahead and purchase your own national treasure hunt merchandise join the hunt follow along with us rep that gear And while you're at it, go ahead and follow, like, review, rate, subscribe, whatever you can do on all of those other platforms that I mentioned. You can't like, rate, subscribe on TeePublic, but you can do it on all the other places. Mm -hmm. Go ahead and do that. And, you know, as always, let us know what you guys are thinking about life, about National Treasure, and about this episode. Couldn't have said it better myself, Em. So with that said, let's just quickly go over how we're going to conduct this character analysis for today's episode. And like I said, this is going to be sort of a recurring format as we move through our other character analyses that are to come. So we're going to start off today by giving a little bit of background about the character of Benjamin Franklin Gates, just so we're all on the same page. Then we're going to play this little adjective game where Emily and I are going to basically try to convince each other that we know the best way to describe Ben Gates. How do we think of him? What adjectives would we use? And how do those relate to his backstory and the movie? Then we are going to go into a little segment called Emily's Patriarchy Corner, which is probably self-explanatory. And finally, we will end the conversation by comparing the actor to the character. So of course, in this case, that is Nick Cage and Ben Gates. And spoiler alert, if you've been listening to us in our last two seasons, you'll know that we find them pretty much interchangeable. So we're going to talk about why that is. All to come on this episode. Sound good, Em? Sounds good. Let's get rolling. All right. So let's get this background out of the way, shall we? As we all know, Benjamin Franklin Gates, Ben Gates, Nick Cage, as we might end up calling him throughout the episode, because again, synonymous, he is our main character in the National Treasure film franchise. His age is never actually clarified in the movie, but it 
should be noted that Nicolas Cage was born in 1964, making him age 40 at the time that National Treasure came out and 43 at the time of National Treasure 2's release. So the first question I have for you, Emily, is do you buy that Ben Gates was 40 years old-ish in these films? No, I think they're doing what they usually do with male actors and making them seem younger than they actually are. So I feel like if we had asked like Charles or Oren what age Ben Gates was, they probably would have said around like early to mid thirties. I was going to say, I'm getting like 34 vibes, Mm -hmm. Um, but that's just me. I wonder, we're gonna have to do this with the other characters as well. That'll be fun. Anyway, as we know, Ben Gates's father is Patrick Henry Gates. His mother is Dr. Emily Appleton, affectionately known here on the pod as Dr. Helen Mirren. And Ben's grandfather's name is John Adams Gates. We all know and love the fact that all of the men in the Gates family lineage are named after people associated with the American Revolution. So, what is Ben Gates' profession? Well, again, this also isn't exactly clear, but I think it's fair to say he's just straight up a treasure hunter, maybe, you know, a bit of an archaeologist, cryptologist, but treasure hunter seems safe. We definitely don't get any impression whatsoever that he's done anything else outside of his educational background, um, whereas we do get some inkling from the other characters. So we're just going to call him a treasure hunter. And speaking of that educational background, how did he prepare for this illustrious career of digging up world-renowned treasures? Well, Emily and I have commented on the past about how thorough Ben Gates' educational pedigree is and how relevant it is to what we see happen in these movies. So just as a recap, he has a mechanical engineering degree from MIT. He has an American history degree from Georgetown. And he studied or or did training at the Naval Diving and Salvage Training Center. And so just to really underscore what we mean by how relevant and purposeful all of those educational trajectories are. I just want to talk a little bit, maybe spitball here, how each of those backgrounds are directly relevant to actions that he takes in either the first or second film. So I don't know, mechanical engineering. Um, Emily, what what comes to mind from the films with that sort of a background for you? Well, I have to be honest, I'm not super clear on what mechanical engineering like is. Um, but I'm going to say he, he's done some sciencey stuff. I mean, for sure. I, I think anyone with an engineering background has some amount of science experience and science class history for sure. I mean, we did a whole episode on it, so he definitely did sciencey stuff. <laughs> um, I think this also probably comes into play with his knowledge of what to do when he and Riley are trapped in the bottom of the Charlotte in the first film and having to escape to the smuggler's hold. I think he demonstrates a, an overall understanding of physics in general. Um, so, you know, when he saved both Abigail and the Declaration of Independence, when that whole Parkington Lane contraption was collapsing in the first mm-hmm. film, Um, He knew about the fact that there should be two exits from the underground cavern, you know, for the construction purposes, you know, 
there's more science stuff even in the second movie the spectral imaging the mechanics of puzzle boxes just little things here and there that i think give us engineering science-y vibes overall mm-hmm. um the american history component here is basically everything <laughs> even i know that <laughs> I mean, and there's there's more than American history that comes into play, as we know. There's definitely some world history and some European history in there as well. But we see that pop up everywhere from the Silence Do Good letters to the Resolute Desks to the story of Cibola and the slave named Esteban. And then, of course, his naval diving experience, which at first really feels random and almost like an afterthought when... Mm-hmm. Agent Sadusky is introducing that concept to us. We, of course, see it become relevant not once but twice in his story arc. The first is when he's jumping off of the Intrepid in the first film. And the second is when he's scuba diving to Mount Vernon from the Potomac River. So this is something that Emily and I like to harp on a lot on our show because I think it's just a really great example of how the writers have constructed this plot in such a way that they're asking us to suspend our disbelief, making Ben as capable of the crazy actions he is going to complete as possible. Mm -hmm. So that is really all that we know about Ben's background. Isn't that weird? Yeah, it's, you know, as I was preparing for this episode, I was realizing just how much information we don't really get about him for being the protagonist of a film yeah i mean everything that we know about him is from our present day understanding um with the exception of when he is in his grandfather's attic in the opening scene with that kid actor that would just never address again (laughs) yeah um okay so now that we're all on the same page and hopefully you all know this is just review for you all i mean no one listening to this show has never seen national treasure before i think Actually, if you haven't seen National Treasure before and you're listening, you should totally let us know on Twitter. But let's move right along into the real beef of this episode, which is the analysis of this character. Like I said, this is our little our little game here where Emily and I are going to go back and forth, um, basically explaining the adjectives that we would use to describe Ben and then discuss these characteristics in the context of the movie. And because we know so little about Ben and his background, we make some projections about why he is the way he is. A lot of extrapolation. Yes, very much, very much scientific analysis. And that's what we do best. Yeah, that's exactly what we do. It's a lot of hypothesizing. Scientific method. And you know how we're gonna test that hypothesis? By asking Charles Noren one day. So (laughs) complete complete the method. Okay, um, so um, how do you want to do this? You want me to kick off with, with the first adjective? Yeah, why don't you go first? Okay, so my first adjective to describe Ben Gates is confident. So I just want your initial reaction to that before I elaborate. That's accurate. Okay, <laughs> that's a fair reaction. Um, I think that most people would call Ben Gates determined. But for me, one step beyond just determined is confident because you have to not only want to do something really badly, which is the determination, but you have to, to some extent, believe in yourself hard enough <laughs> that you know you can do it once you set your, um, once you've set your mind to it. Mm-hmm. So I think Ben is really 
the best description I can think of or the best example I can think of when it comes to not letting anyone tell him no, he like, that's like not in his vocabulary. Um, I mean, just think about it. Start from his father's disapproval over his choice of career. We only know about that indirectly and through conversations when he's reconciling with his dad for the first time in the first movie. But even though his dad was clearly very disapproving, he was basically willing to sacrifice his relationship with his father because no one's going to tell him no and he's going to do this thing. Um, And he will just straight up do whatever it takes to succeed, which is borderline problematic. I mean, he's literally willing to commit felonies. Yeah, I would say that based on that description, confident is a very nice way to describe him. Okay, what is there? Is there a particular word that you rebut with? No, you know, I think I'm. I think I'm going to save that okay. for uh, for our next uh, segment here. Okay, that's fine. But I, it is a nice way to describe it. But I'll I'll go one step further and say, you know, I think the reason he's willing to commit the felonies in the first place is because he has so much confidence that he'll be successful or like win whatever game that he's playing he's basically so confident that each step in this crazy plan that he's putting together is going to succeed whether that is stealing the declaration or convincing the president to tell him where the book is to prevent abigail from going rogue when he basically kidnaps her in the first movie to you know I don't know, any one of these crazy things where his whole spot could have been blown up for lack of better terms. He's he's going to trust in himself that he's effective enough that he's going to succeed. Um, it's honestly, to me, so confident that he's bordering on arrogant. So if there was like a not nice way to say this, I think that would be the word that I would use. I agree with that. You, you agree. Okay. Um, I think that I would have selected the word arrogant as my adjective here if he didn't actively rely on and appreciate what Abigail and Riley bring to the table in this hunt. Hmm. Right. Because I think he truly does. And that's mm-hmm. what separates him from, from the arrogant side. Okay. I don't fully buy it, but I'll, I'll accept it. Really? Okay. Okay. Fair, fair. I mean, if I'm playing devil's advocate here for a second, what if I had gone with arrogant? I'm trying to think of an example where he was truly arrogant. And the only thing coming to mind, to be honest with you, is the scene in the first movie at the gala when like, he's preparing basically to steal the declaration and he chooses to encounter Abigail and basically tip her off completely unnecessarily that he's going to steal a declaration but he does it anyway because he just knows he can totally get away with it because he's so confident so Mm -hmm. that is I think the most arrogant thing that we see him do am I do you think I'm forgetting anything no I think that's fair so to wrap up this little spiel on Ben's confidence I wanted to start thinking like we said about why Like, why does he have this unnaturally high level of confidence besides the fact that he's a white male? And 
come on, you should have enjoyed that. I made a patriarchy comment. <laughs> Jeez. No, I did. That was good. Give me some credit. Anyway, <laughs> I think maybe some of this confidence is stemming from the fact that he and his family were ridiculed for so long for believing in and pursuing this treasure that he just, he wants so badly to prove all the naysayers wrong that he's almost like prepared himself in the most thorough way possible through this diverse education, through building this really effective team to find the treasure with treasure with all the resources that he needs. He's over-prepared. And when you're that prepared, why wouldn't you be confident? I mean, we're even meant to believe that he's tried and failed so long to find the Charlotte at the very beginning of the first movie that it's like, how how could he go any more wrong? It's only up from here, only uphill from here. So I think the rest is just easy for him. And so he, between all of his preparation and his, his family history in this space, that's where I think the confidence comes from. Again, based solely on the little that we do know about his family. Okay. Well, I see your confidence. <laughs> And I raise you my first adjective, which is intriguing. Okay, I'm intrigued. (laughs) Good. Now, I want to start by saying I wouldn't go so far as to say that Ben's necessarily a mysterious character. In many ways, he wears his heart on his sleeve. Uh, I mean, think about in the second film, whenever he's interacting with his mother, you can tell kind of the love that's there when she's in danger towards the end of the movie he's truly you know concerned about that when uh Mitch presents the evidence at the beginning of the second movie about his family he's so depressed and so down about that you know what he's feeling Mm -hmm. so I don't think he's mysterious in that way but I think that there's more that you want to know about him. And I'd say that this is a wise choice. This is something that you arguably want in the main character for kind of any film franchise, right? You want to draw the audience in by not giving them too much information about the character. But he has this sense of being like overly accomplished to the point where you wonder how he had time to do all of the things that you described, but also- Like his uh, educational background? Yes, like his education, like the Navy, all like how he got all his degrees, stuff like that. And, but then you waver between that and thinking, well, like how cool it is that he has such varied interests. And that, that really is something that's intriguing about him. You wanna know like, where'd you find the time, bro? But also like, dude, super cool that you are this- expansive in your personality like that's pretty neat Uh and I think you know you touched on the point a little bit so I don't want to go too too much into it but I think part of what leads to this intrigue is like we mentioned we don't know a ton about his personal life very surprisingly right we don't really get any mentions of any previous romantic relationships that he's had before Abigail, except for that one kind of weird offhand comment that his father makes when he shows up with Abigail and he asks if she's pregnant. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I don't know what that is supposed to suggest to us. Uh, if it's uh, that that has happened before in his life or that his father just has that bad of an impression of him. Uh, take that as you will, I guess. But intriguing, right? We don't know. And we know that he has a relationship with his mom, but we don't really know how much of a relationship they have or much about it besides the fact that it's better than the one that his dad has with his mom, right? True. We know that they still talk to each other. And as you mentioned, we don't really learn about his childhood. We see that one scene of him in the beginning of the first film as a child. And then, like you said, we never really touch on it again. And, you know, there are mentions in the second film when his mom and dad are arguing of his dad having been interested and involved somewhat in treasure hunting. But there's no mention of how exactly this impacted Ben as a child, right? So we know that this was probably part of his childhood growing up, but we don't know the positive or negative effects that this had. We have to kind of, as you're saying, extrapolate mm -hmm. all of these different points about him. And I think that, you know, as frustrating as this can be for us people who are really trying to dig deep into the character and want to know all the information about him. I think that this is a good play by the writers and the producers to make it so we don't really have all of these answers about him because I don't know that people would normally be asking these questions if they're just casual viewers, but also if they are, it leaves the character to be, as I said, intriguing. Yeah, what I'm getting from this is you just want more background info. <laughs> But no, I think maybe it's a conscious decision on the creator's part because they really want your impression of Ben to be rooted in the present as opposed to being um, tainted or affected by what you may or may not know about his past and his history. I mean, we've almost judged him before for like associating with Ian and True. we know barely anything about that but could you imagine if we knew if there was some salacious rationale for that comment from his dad about abigail being pregnant like what if we you know what if we wouldn't like the character as much yeah. based on that backstory that's really interesting so okay so emily you were intrigued i think you just want more backstory because you're really invested in characters but i'm gonna go on and give you my second adjective, which is like two adjectives because I kind of couldn't decide which one to pick. So I'm kind of cheating, but they're related. And those adjectives are trusting and idealist. So I think that the trust that Ben has kind of is indicative of him being an idealist. That's why I think these are related. And I honestly find that Ben is almost detrimentally trusting of people, of history, and even of his own gut. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, that, that unrealistic amount of blind trust that he exhibits is what I think makes him an idealist. Okay, so I have some examples here that I want to give to sort of explain what I mean by this. And some of them are people and some of them are situations, but I'll start with Ian, Ben's relationship with Ian. So, Ben is really smart, right? I think you and I can agree on that. That's an adjective neither of us chose, but I think we would agree on. <laughs> yes, it almost seemed too obvious. Exactly. So Ben is super smart. So I 
think he's too smart not to have looked into Ian's background before accepting him as his financier, right? So that mm. means that at least to some limited extent, Ben knows that Ian is a sketchy guy. But even so, he trusts that Ian is not going to double cross him and that he's going to fund his mission and is going to not steal the treasure at the end when they find it, presumably together. And he's just kind of going to trust this deal that he made with the equivalent of the devil in this first movie. And this, in a way, links back to Ben's confidence in himself, I think, um, right? Because he probably had a contingency plan in his head if Ian ever did try to double cross him, at least to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, him trusting Ian, that ends up being like misplaced trust, obviously, right? And I think there's a moment when we see that, we've talked about this moment before, when they make eye contact as Ian is basically locking Ben down in the bowels of the Charlotte, effectively thinking he's going to murder him. And you kind of see them make that eye contact. And I think that's the moment Ben realizes that the trust is misplaced. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's nicely played out in a production, from a production standpoint. Um, but I think that's a huge example of Ben being like a trusting but confident person. I have another example, Abigail, our favorite female protagonist. So also one of the few females in the film in the entire movie, but Hey, at least both of the females in the film are doctors. True. But that's a story for another character analysis. In any case, Ben trusts that Abigail, whom is not part of his team at the time that they meet, He trusts that she's going to be so intrigued by the prospect of finding this treasure and that there's something that she doesn't know about the Declaration of Independence, that she's going to join the hunt with them and join this, their little team uh, of Ben and Riley, instead of just trying to escape and run to the FBI and turn him in, et cetera. That's in the first movie. That's a lot of trust right there. Because she, at this point, she knows his name. She knows where he's going. She knows the license plate on the van they're using. She knows about Riley. She knows where they're heading, like, next in the sequence of, of the treasure hunt. Like, she knows it all. That's a lot of trust. He also has a lot of blind trust in her in the equivalent point in National Treasure 2. When they're at odds, again, they're they're not really on friendly terms, when she goes out to England to try to help him at Buckingham Palace. Mm-hmm. He just kind of trusts that she's going to catch on to his little game and like play along in that exchange on the steps of Buckingham Palace. That's so true. And this is a case where I think his trust in Abigail paid off in both films. But again, a very trusting person. Yeah. Could have, could have not played out that way, buddy. The president of the United States in <laughs> National Treasure 2. Ben trusts that the president is going to tell him where the book is and that the president isn't going to tell the FBI where he's going. Surprisingly, again, this pays off. This blind that is shocking. <laughs> trust pays off. And I think it's that confidence again. Like, he's so confident that he's going to convince the president to tell him the secret. Because, you know, a lot of people, I think, miss the fact that it's not actually the president that really tips off the FBI, per se. 
And we find out that Sadusky actually knew where the book was from the get-go. And speaking of Sadusky, we have some blind trust in Agent Sadusky. Your favorite. The worst. Why is he the worst? Well, Ben misplaced some trust in Agent Sadusky because as we see in the final cut of the film, ignoring all the deleted scenes that we've shared with you on social media before, this trust is definitely misplaced. Sadusky, of course, told Ben that the president's secret book was real, but said he couldn't tell him where it was because apparently only the president knew. We find out later that Sadusky knew where it was when Ben, Abigail, and Riley are arriving at the Library of Congress and all the cop cars are coming and Ben makes a very quick offhanded comment when Riley's like, how did they know we were here so fast? And Ben says, Sadusky knew more about the book than he let on. So in a sense, I've just got to say, it's entirely Sadusky's fault that Ben kidnapped the president. And he goes after him for it anyway, because he could have just told him where the book was from the get-go. Somebody's got to go to prison. And it should be Sadusky. Anyway, I want to kind of wrap up this little trusting adjective spiel by also just recognizing it's not just people that Ben ex- exhibits this blind trust and faith in. He, he also has this faith that no one in history could have possibly found the clues or the treasure beforehand in the intervening centuries. And we see this realization for the first time that, oh, maybe someone actually found it already. When we get to that like antechamber under Trinity Church before the treasure room. And he's like, oh my God, the treasure is gone. And he seems yeah. genuinely shocked that that's a possibility. Right. Another example of him wearing his heart on his sleeve. True. That's true. That's fair. I mean, what we're getting out of the, the whole point of this adjective analysis, spoiler alert, is he's a complex person as a character should be. But why, Emily, why do we think he's so trusting and such an idealist? Do you have any thoughts? Like my initial gut as like a neuroscientist is to say that he was raised that way. That's how he was brought up. But like I said in my previous, in my at first adjective, we don't know much about his personal life. So we don't really know how he was brought up. Yeah. I mean, my, my answer is, I think, in the same vein. And it's pretty simple. I think he's trusting because he has to be. And he's an idealist because he has to be. I mean, this treasure hunt is so fantastical and so improbable. And people have been trying according to this story, to find this treasure for centuries, that Ben really has to have blind faith in its existence and his ability to find it in order to actually end up finding it. He he really needs to believe it as much as the audience disbelieves it. Hmm. And and that's, that's all I can... That's that's kind of where I landed there. So So that's it. That's... Ben is a trusting idealist. What you got for me for your second adjective? Well, that's a hard one to follow, but I'm going to go with noble for my second adjective. Now, like the noble bird. Sure. Yes, Come on, it's a Riley bird. moment. Jeez. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, it goes off a lot of the points that you've made. I feel like, you know, as you pointed out just a couple 
minutes ago, I, you know, we're going to start to see a lot of these things kind of intersecting with one another as we continue along here because he is a complex person and many of these personality traits and adjectives do have some amount of overlap with one another. But I want to start off by saying the main thing I look for in a noble character is someone who wants to do the right thing for the right reason, even if it doesn't directly benefit them. And the Aubrey's going to hate this reference because she's not going to get it. But the best reference that I have right now is the character of Angel from Angel the series from the Buffy the Vampire Slayer universe. He's a vampire with a soul and he's pretty much doomed to live out his life forever and never really have much good happen to him but he goes around trying to help people not because he thinks he's going to win a, a long battle that's coming but because he knows that it's the right thing to do and you should want to help people and going off of this I want to note that many people are probably thinking right now like okay but that doesn't sound like Ben which fair. A lot of people might argue that this is literally the opposite of who Ben is as a character because nearly everything he does is to prove someone wrong or to kind of clear his family's name. But I would go one step further and argue that these are somewhat surface level rationales that become less prominent when you really dig into the story. So in the second movie, he did want to clear his family's name, right? I, like we can all agree on that with my lack of knowledge about these films. Even I know that he wanted to clear his family's name in the second film. But it wasn't really about him clearing his family's name for himself so that he could go about the rest of his life and not have his last name associated with this thing. But he wanted to clear his last, or he wanted to clear his name for the sake of his ancestors. And yeah. I think this is really highlighted by the fact that, you know, we begin the second film by, you know, seeing that flashback sequence with his ancestor in it, where we're seeing that, you know, like this person did a good, a good thing. He was trying to do the right thing. He was acting you know, probably in a very trusting way in the same way that Ben does in a lot of cases. And I think that that's highlighting the fact that the ancestry is really important to Ben. So yeah, he's not doing totally, it. It's so about his family. Yeah. And so I would argue that, that that makes him a little more noble, even though it seems like it, it might not be on the surface. Now, I'm also going to say he was noble at the end of the second movie with his move <laughs> with Mitch, right? Mm -hmm. I, I hate this part. I, it's a stupid part of the movie to me but I also it makes him noble he did the right thing for the right reasons even though he did let Mitch die which many could argue that that was not doing the right thing or you could argue that was noble because Mitch is a bad person plot twist <laughs> Yes, and as we know, water is the villain. So True. It, you know, he had no control over what water, water chose killed him. To do. Ben didn't kill him. Ben water didn't kill him. him. Yep, it was all that. So even though he did let Mitch die, Ben still made sure that Mitch got the credit, even though Mitch barely helped at all, as we've noted many times. 
he still made sure that at the end of the day, Mitch got the credit that he asked for. And I would argue that he was more noble or Ben was more noble than I would have been in that particular case. Yeah, it's kind of like authorship on a paper, Mm. right? Since we're both from the science world, it's like, do you give authorship to someone who like didn't help at all? This is a story for an entirely other podcast because I'm sure there are lots of people with very different opinions on the answer to that question. In this case, Ben gave Mitch authorship, whether we like it or not. (laughs) It happened. And then I, you know, going into my favorite area, the quotes, would argue that through some of the use of quotes in this film, you really see Ben's nobility kind of shine through. Some of the comments he makes about the Declaration of Independence in the first movie and the comments he makes to the president in the second movie when they're when he kidnaps the president and he's basically telling the president that he that the president could be a part of helping to uncover a piece of history that's been lost right all of this kind of suggests that he might actually be doing a lot of the treasure hunting for the sake of history Mm -hmm. you putting that american history degree to use Mm -hmm. he's doing it to uncover history he's doing it to bring it to the forefront he's doing it to honor people in history You know, something that you mentioned earlier on was that, you know, we don't really know, we call his profession a treasure hunter, but we don't really know, right, like what else he's doing and what else he's doing to make money, even, one could argue. And one could argue that because he's a treasure hunter, that's how he makes his money. But we we don't really see that pan out and we don't see that as the main motivation as to why he's doing this, but instead he's doing it for much more noble reasons. So where do you think the origin is coming from for that trait? I think that's an innate thing, to be completely honest. I, you know, not like I, I've said, not knowing much about his life growing up, I, I think it's hard to say, but it's difficult to imagine that that was something that was instilled by his father, uh, maybe by his mother, because she seems like a pretty, I don't know, good person. It's possible that that was instilled by her, but I think, you know, when it comes down to it, I think a lot of it honestly might be for just from his reverence for history mm-hmm. and which is totally a family thing, which is totally like, a family thing passed through like generations in his family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, all right. I see your nobility and I'm going to raise you my third adjective, which is team player. And I, I feel like, I don't know, again, if you have any initial reactions to that, I would welcome them because I think there's a lot more evidence that we traditionally think about to prove that Ben is a team player. So any thoughts? It's not one of the first three adjectives that I would think of, I have to say, but I'm interested to hear what you have to back up this claim. Yeah. So again, We've acknowledged that Ben is very smart. And as smart as he is, I think there's truly um, an, a subtle recognition from the very beginning of the entire franchise that he cannot find these treasures himself. 
And that is why, again, from the very beginning, Ian and Riley are on the team because they each provide skills or resources that Ben doesn't have. So he fully understands that he can't just whip the money out of thin air that he needs to finance his mission. He doesn't have the tech skills that Riley has that would make some of these things possible. Um, so, so he's always had this team around him for as long as we, the viewer, have known him. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't know what led up to that, to be fair. He could have been trying this on his own for years, and maybe that's how he becomes a team player, because he keeps failing, because he's missing pieces of, of the team puzzle, because he can't be the I in team, if you will. Um, then we also see when Abigail comes onto the scene he's not threatened by her. If anything, to use one of your words, Emily, he's initially intrigued by her, which we see in the introductory scene in her office at the archives. I think it's very clear that he's intrigued by her. And I think he recognizes fairly early on, especially when she inadvertently becomes part of his team, that she is his equal. He he really embraces her participation. Mm-hmm after she proves that she's dedicated, right? After she says, oh, if you didn't want me to come with you, you shouldn't have told me where you're going. And then he's like, oh, I think that's actually the moment that he realizes, all right, we're on the same playing field here. Like that was slick. And I'm going to give you props for that, you know? And maybe also when he realized that his trust in her was earned. Yes, that's a good point. You're proving my own points here. So I can't complain. I think it's a little less combative than you thought it was going to be, isn't it? (laughs) Definitely. But even more so, I think just in general, we see Ben recognizing every instance where he just has to work together, even if that means working with the villain. You know, this is most obvious in Book of Secrets when he needs to work with Mitch to survive the tilt platform and to survive Cibola as it's flooding and even to get the final answers to the riddle questions in that in that film. He knows he can't do all of these things on his own. He can't make his whole team survive without working with the working with the bad guy and maybe that's an aspect of nobility too I'm not sure you know Mm. knowing when you can distance yourself from someone and when to be effective you need to find ways to work together I mean we talk about the societal relevance of these movies all the time I think it's an interesting analogy to think about that when you need to work with someone who has an opposing view of yours to actually make meaningful change in this wow. case, surviving Cibola. Um, <laughs> but Got deep for a moment, Aubrey. I, I, I pulled an Emily. I don't know what's going on here. Um, but I will actually hearken back to a point that you made in your last uh, adjective and say that I think his team player nature is actually most evident from the conclusion of both films. In the first film's case, the credit for the Templar treasure goes to the entire Gates family, mm-hmm. plus Riley, right? So not Abigail. Not Abigail. That's a whole other problem that annoys me to this day. But again, it's not, he's not just saying, well, I mean, my family didn't really help that much. It's really all me. I found the treasure. Or even just, it's not even just him and Riley. It's his whole family because they've been searching for it for centuries. And then in the second movie, the credit for Cibola, as you've already aptly mentioned, goes to the Gates family, Abigail, Riley, and Mitch. 
Mitch didn't deserve it, as we know. But Ben but he pro- got it. He got it because Ben promised, and because he's noble, he kept his promise. And on top of it, also, like you mentioned, when it comes to how does Ben make his money, he doesn't want to keep the treasures. He consistently wants to share them with the world, whether that's major museums or the descendants that they of the people that they belong to originally. So I, I think these are all aspects of a team player. It's kind of sharing the wealth, sharing the appreciation, using the abilities that other people have to help him accomplish his own goal it's a very team oriented mo even though he drives a lot of the action himself so i know it's not maybe necessarily the first thing you thought of but does that make sense it makes a lot of sense like now that you've explained it i can't unassociate it with him it it just it seems so fitting and just something that i it's, it's so embedded in his character and the films, it's kind of astonishing really to, to think that, that that isn't one of the first things that came to my mind. For sure. And, but you know, I do think it plays to the nobility a lot. And I also have some ideas about where the origin of this characteristic came from for him. I actually think it's probably twofold. I think mm-hmm. part of it comes from his respect for the founding fathers and recognizing, for lack of better terms, the teamwork that went into hiding and protecting this treasure in the first place. That was a massive team effort in both movies. Different groups of people couldn't be done by one person in either case. And we already know how much he respects history. So that seems to be consistent. Mm -hmm. Secondly, I think this comes from his respect for and his loyalty once again to his family and just the long line of treasure hunters that came before him, made him who he is, and probably in his mind helped him find the treasure through their Mm -hmm. failures. You know, it's kind of like the whole um, found, uh, what was it? What was the quote from the movie? Um, Thomas Edison tried and failed a thousand times. A thousand times to make a light bulb. To make the light bulb, but he only needed to find one way that worked or whatever. So in this case, I mean, the long line of failures that led to the light bulb were his ancestors attempts so i think he sees his family even the the descendants he's never met as sort of part of his team so that's that's what i'm attributing his teamwork to so emily i think you have an excellent adjective to end this little analysis with well i thank you for thinking that humbly because i have to say that you are really as you have been saying, pulling in Emily, you're really showing me up here in terms of how deeply you've thought about all of these character traits um, of Ben. Mine is going to seem much more surface level compared to yours. Okay. But I would argue is very important to who he is as a character. And that is that Ben is adventurous. I would argue that this movie can't happen if he's not. So I agree. Exactly. Now, You know, honestly, the fact that he has the desire to go get up off his couch or out from behind his desk and to go and risk his life for literally every single clue, right, really suggests not only this dedication that he has, but that he is willing to kind of 
put his life at stake. He's willing to go on an adventure. I mean, and it's different than just being super interested in this kind of stuff, right? Like I'm really interested in this kind of stuff. That's why I love these movies so much. Treasure hunts are fascinating. You know, recently when we talked to Robert on Code Bar Live, hearing him talk about all of the treasure hunts that he does remotely, it, it's absolutely fascinating to me. But I mean, I get stressed out about going on hikes in new places, right? And meanwhile, Ben is over here exploring the Arctic tundra and throwing his hand in random rock crevices that could very well have been booby-trapped because as we've seen in both the first and the second movies, many of the things are booby-trapped, i.e. tilt platform that still brings me so much stress, even after seeing the movie as many times as I have. And he honestly, you know, he takes it all in just such stride. He, he seems unfazed, really. And that suggests that this is something kind of innate to his personality. And it's not just a random character trait that we're observing in the movie, right? Like at this point in time, when we've captured Ben Gates doing this thing, he's adventurous. But if we were to go and look at him for the time in between the first and the second films, right? Maybe you would think, oh, well, he wouldn't be that adventurous there. But I think the fact that he is so unfazed by so many of the things that happen in the film really suggests that this is a continuous thing for him. And I mean, when you think about it, really, he rarely gets flustered, even when things seem to go wrong. Uh, some examples are when he had the Declaration of Independence and the empty poster tube, and he had to do that whole swap in, in the first film in order to make sure that Ian didn't end up getting both the Declaration and the glasses that he needed to read the back of the Declaration. You could argue also in the first movie when he just jumps into the Hudson River randomly to decide to start working with Ian and go against Sadusky, which, you know, we love because props for going against Sadusky and props. working with Sean Bean, but still seems like a sketchy move. And like, he just did that. I would have stood there and had a long, hard think about the pros and cons of why I should or shouldn't do this. And he just kind of was like, you know what, I'm going to use that diving training that I have. I'm going to jump right in that water. And that water's cloudy, as they say in the film. So really, really very, very adventurous, especially in that experience on his part. I wonder if this is one character trait we might see a little bit of the origin story for. I'm thinking about the scene in his grandfather's attic at the beginning mm -hmm. of the first movie when he's just clearly mystified by the prospect that his family is this family of knights and they have this legacy to protect and this treasure to find and protect. And I wonder if this adventurous spirit stems from that moment. I think it's highly possible. That's a great observation, Albert. Awesome. Well, I agree with you that the adjective adventurous might seem obvious, but again, I think it's really crux to the entirety of the franchise. So I'm not mad at it. I'm not mad Good. at it at all. What a complex character we have in our midst, which I think leads us to our next segment here, 
As we begin wrapping up this episode, which is Emily's Patriarchy Corner. So this is a segment that we are going to do where Emily is going to analyze how Ben Gates supports or overturns the patriarchy, or both, of course, with context from particular scenes in the movies. So Emily, take it away. Welcome one and all to my corner over here, which is the patriarchy corner. Let's get started today by talking about the scene from the first movie on the lawn at the Tidal Basin, where Ben basically manhandles and kidnaps Abigail. Let's start off by saying, not cool, dude, not cool. But if that's not an example of patriarchy, boy, I don't know what is. (laughs) He also has a tendency, he has a tendency to show his patriarchy a lot of the times. I mean, in fairness, in reference to female characters, which is kind of the design of the patriarchy in itself. So in the second movie, he gets a little possessive of Abigail. It's just not my favorite thing when she's coming home from her date with Phil from Modern Family. Mm -hmm. And he's in her house, basically, and is kind of questioning, like, why she had been on this date with this person and how long she'd been dating him and the fact that he, you know, came inside and all this kind of stuff. And you know, something that I found interesting was that she also wasn't super, like, surprised to see him there necessarily, or that he was asking these questions, which (laughs) leads me to think that maybe he'd been doing or saying things like that since they broke up. Woof. So, once again, Ben got some work to do, buddy. Not cool, dude. Not not cool. cool. (laughs) Then we got this whole scene in the National Treasure 2 in the Buckingham Palace with him wanting Abigail to stay put in the basically the faux jail cell that they were placed in. And he argues that it's too dangerous for her to come with him. And to that, I would just like to say, Ben, she literally hung out of a moving van that was getting shot at during the first film before she was a full member of your team she's fine bro it's true like calm down that patriarchy rein it in a little bit remember what your woman has been through good point can't argue with that and also she's not your woman she's just a woman that was a misspoken misspeak on my part emily's in the patriarchy (laughs) we're all burdened by the patriarchy we are all immersed in this system unfortunately and now i'm joking here but in the second film when they're in both buckingham house and the oval office when they're doing the puzzle boxes which are the desks to be which are the desks yes i mean geez ben let abigail do at least two of the puzzle box drawers don't do he did like three of them and she only did one (laughs) like calm down bro anyway that's that's more of a joking one but interestingly this kind of puts in a point that i wanted to hit on and i've touched on before in episodes like hunt for da vinci is that you know the framework of this movie seems to be more patriarchal than ben is himself you can think of it kind of in the way that they play the love story with the kiss happening in the first film right before all the dangerous stuff happens 
that that seems a little possessive. It seems a little patriarchal, right? It makes us, you know, go, mm-hmm. okay. You know, even me, someone who loves the love yeah. stories. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little heteronormative. It heteronormative is a great, great term for it. Ben is also often going out on adventures alone. So think about when he kidnaps the president. He's doing that by himself. There's not even a presence for a woman in that. So at that point in time, they were even, Abigail and Ben were even working together. So like really she could have had an opportunity to, you know, be in on this plan, but the way that the movie is structured, it's not, that doesn't happen, which I would argue gives it more of a patriarchal spin than it necessarily has to. But I also want to point out that this does not mean that Ben himself is not fallen prey to the patriarchy, right? This doesn't excuse all the stuff that Ben does. Some stuff that he does, though, that does seem kind of like he might not be a stupid patriarchal person, you know? He, he often seems to value Abigail's opinion, sometimes more than Riley's, as I've mentioned. Think of the scene in the clothing store in the first film where they're trying to finger, figure out the Independence Hall clue, right? Him and Abigail are the ones that are having that conversation. Mm-hmm. Riley's right there, but it takes Riley a couple times to really get their attention so that he can chime in about the daylight savings time business, right? And a lot of times, even though he is concerned with Abigail's safety at some points, a lot of times he's unconcerned with her safety and, and not, not in a bad way, <laughs> but in the sense of in the first movie when they were under the church, he's just kind of chill with her being there. Like I mentioned, he does the kiss thing before they get really far into things, but that's all that really happens, right? You don't see him being particularly possessive. And he's her. willing to let her fall when everything is collapsing around them to save the declaration. Exactly. Exactly. So I just like to wrap up this little corner of mine. Thank you so much for joining me in my patriarchy corner by saying that in some Ben's actions don't really even out, right? His patriarchal versus non-patriarchal actions don't necessarily even out. And I wouldn't go so far as to say that he's a character that's actively dismantling the patriarchy, but I would also say that there are a few male characters that we see in television and in movies that do. So uh, he's in very mediocre company, is I guess what you would say. He is. And that <laughs> has been Emily's Patriarchy Corner. Thank you so much for joining us. Aubrey, what is our next thing that we have here to wrap up this episode? Our final segment of our character analysis of Ben Gates is perhaps my favorite part, which is comparing and contrasting the actor and the character, the man, the myth, and the legend, because again, Ben Gates versus Nicolas Cage, are they the same person? Who's to say? Well, we're going to try to say right now. So on the surface, I would say that Ben seems way more normal than our stereotypical understanding of the man that is Nicolas Cage. You know, we all, as the public, know of Nicolas Cage by his outbursts and his eccentricity and whatnot. And I would argue that Ben is quite literally the exact opposite of that. He does not really have many outbursts. The outbursts that we see in the film are very tame. 
he's really just an everyday human man who's just part of the patriarchy as emily just discussed you know <laughs> etc pretty status quo standard but take this one step further with me and i would actually argue that the real similarity between these characters comes from the fact that ben is so nonchalant and so deadpan about abnormal, impossible, crazy situations. And in that way, he's a little similar to Nick Cage. And here's the thing, this movie world that has been created isn't trying to convince us that his action, that Ben's actions aren't nuts, right? True. Riley, Abigail, everyone around him, his father, they're all acknowledging the insanity of his propositions. But Nick Cage, Ben Gates, sitting there like, no, it's all good. I'm going to kidnap the president of the United States. I was thinking Mount Vernon, you know, like this is super chill. It's like, of course, Ben thinks all of these impossible tasks are possible, even though everyone else sees the impossibility, because Ben is Nick Cage, people. That's why this (laughs) casting choice is so brilliant. But here you go. Even if... Even if that doesn't float your boat, which I really buy personally, like I'm not making this up, there are some other subtle similarities uh, between the two. So, for example, Nick Cage's father, August Coppola, was a professor, like Ben's mom in the movie. And also, I would say that while Ben's family industry, if you will, is treasure hunting and history, Nick Cage also has a family business, and it's called the film and television industry. I don't know if you missed it, but the Coppola family is prolific throughout the film and television industry. So it has some of that family connection and family relevance there. I would even wonder if maybe Nick Cage felt some sort of kinship with Ben the character based on what he felt as a mutual need to separate himself from his family within that family business. I mean, Mm. Ben, we learn, occasionally hides his family's treasure hunting history, right? He called himself Paul Brown, Mm -hmm. right? When he first meets Abigail because quote unquote, the Gates family name doesn't get much respect from the historical community. Which fair. Which fair until this movie happens. But did you know, Nick Cage, I mean, we've talked about this before. Nick Cage changed his own name from Nicholas Coppola to Nicholas Cage to avoid the appearance of nepotism since he's the nephew of famous director Francis Ford Coppola. Hmm. So maybe there's some kinship there. And hey, speaking of the Gates family not being respected by the mainstream historical community, we all know that Nick Cage is not respected by many in the industry or even the movie-watching public. (laughs) I'm just saying, I mean, because of all this, I say a win for Ben Gates feels like a big win for Nick Cage, especially since National Treasure 2 and National Treasure 1 are his highest grossing live action films domestically. Well earned, sir. Well earned. And I would be remiss if I did not re-mention the fact that Nick Cage has been reported as having hunted for the Holy Grail himself. Yes. It was widely reported in 2019 that Nick Cage's study of philosophy, matched with unsustainable spending habits, led him on a quest for the Holy Grail. And much like Patrick Gates warned, one clue was said to have led to another, which led to another which led to another. So in a very profound way, Nick Cage himself determined that the grail must be the earth itself, which is 
basically the same as Ben Gates saying the treasure was the Declaration of Independence all along or the friends we made along the way. Wow. Aubrey, amazing. Thank you. So with that, I just want to say that if I could ask Nick Cage one question and one question only about his time on National Treasure, first and foremost, that would be really hard to do because I want to ask him a lot of questions. But based on this alone, I just really want to know, like, what was what was the most challenging part about playing Ben Gates for him? Was it the fact that Ben Gates was such a normal quote unquote character or did he actually see all of these parallels between himself and the character and that's what made it work so well Mm. so that is my take on ben gates versus nick cage one and the same i say yes well aubrey thank you so much for wrapping us up with that wonderful segment this has been a pleasure of an episode to record with you if i do say so myself Thank you. Likewise, this was super fun. I think the in-depth analysis really lets us um, call back to everything that we know about these movies in a way that feels really productive and also is a little bit validating because we know a lot about this character, Emily. (laughs) (laughs) Some would argue too much. Some would argue too much, yeah. So, hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this character analysis of Ben Gates. Again, you have more of this to look forward to if you did enjoy it. And if you didn't, you're just going to come back anyway because we're not telling you when we're analyzing Abigail and Riley. You just get to be surprised. In two weeks, we do have another episode for you guys. This one is going to be one of our classic pop culture comparison episodes where we're comparing the National Treasure film franchise to another movie in this grand action adventure heist community of films. Emily, you want to tell them what movie we're talking about? We are going to be talking about Ocean's 8, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, which on the surface probably seems very different from National Treasure, and I would say fair, especially in comparison to the patriarchy corner we got from Emily today, Ocean's 8 is all women. Um, But we are going to be comparing these out of the angle that they are heist films. And so so that's the angle that we're gonna be taking on that. So you're gonna wanna come back and listen to that. Uh, But in the meantime, we have lots to share with you on social media. So Emily, where should they check us out? You can find us on Twitter or on Instagram at NT Hunt Podcast. Go ahead and follow us along. Let us know your thoughts about today's episode and any of our episodes, really. You can find us for your listening ears on iTunes, Spotify. We even got you covered. Yes, we do on SoundCloud. And I would be remiss if I did not mention that we now have a merch store that you can check out on T Public. Go ahead and get any kind of National Treasure Hunt gear you can and go ahead and rep this wonderful podcasting community that we have. Yeah, you should totally do that. And I don't think I have much more to add. So thank you all for joining us. And we look forward to you coming back once again for that episode on Oceans 8 and National Treasure. But until then, I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And thank you so much for joining us on our National Treasure Hunt.